these chapters, uh, Mormon 7, 8, and 9, um, this isn't necessarily fun stuff. This isn't light and excitedness, and this is, this is pretty heartbreaking. Uh, and we're looking through the perspective of our view of things, uh, but wow. Um, let's start off with, uh, we're going to get, Mormon is going to give us his last will and testament, basically, in Mormon 7, and then we're going to get Moroni basically giving his last will and testament in 8 and 9, basically going, well, there's no more room, and I'm dead, and everybody else is dead, and I'm alone, and life ain't great, and I ain't got any more, and I guess I'm done. Okay? So before we get to that wonderful soliloquy, let's finish with Mormon. Um, Mormon. He starts off Mormon 7.1. And now behold, I would speak somewhat unto the remnant of the people who are spared. Who's he talking to? Who are the remnant of the people that are spared? Okay, it is Lamanites, because remember, remnant of the house of Israel is always Lamanites. In a sense, yeah. But, but before we go there, the remnant of who, so if the, we're talking about Lamanites who are spared. Who's, who's spared? Okay, they're spared. Yeah? Oh, in other words, you're, oh, okay. Hold on to that one, yeah? And, and they escape down into the south countries. Okay? But keep in mind, who's going to read this record? Anybody in 385 AD, 400 AD, are they going to read this record? So we're talking about a completely future people that are a remnant who will be spared. Well, what happened to both the, the American Indians in the north and, uh, and the Mayans and Aztec and everybody in Mesoamerica? Were they spared? But spared from what, though? They were conquered, right. So had they gone through a period where some of them would be left on the other side to be spared if they weren't killed by the Gentiles coming in that are going to stir them around and capture them and conquer them and kill them and bring diseases to them, and all those kind of things. That's what we're talking about, yeah. Could it also be the ten tribes? That, that's interesting. She's wondering if it's also includes the ten tribes. Interesting thing about them, they are, yeah, in the same way they're spared, in the same way that the Jews were spared, but when we're talking about the remnant that he is focusing on, he's talking about a very specific group, and and that's when we're getting in. The remnant of the house of Israel is always code word for something specific. In fact, let me... He kind of does a... It's kind of... If you'll think about how he's constructed this. Remember, we're wanting to look at Mormon. This is our last shot at seeing Mormon here, other than some preaching that some of his talks we're going to do in a couple of weeks with his son Moroni. But, um, remember, look at him as an author. Because then you understand why he put what he put, where he put it, next to what, where he put it. Okay? 
that makes sense. Okay? Because in the title page of the Book of Mormon, to start this whole thing, the title page was written by who? Mormon. Written by the hand of Mormon. And it was written by the hand of Mormon to who? And he wanted Joseph to put this right at the front of the book, this compilation of records. If you look in the title page of the Book of Mormon, you're going to see that which is to show unto the remnant of the house of Israel, the remaining surviving Lamanites, what's he going to show unto them? What's the most important thing to him that they know? That they are of the house of Israel, and because they are of the house of Israel, then what? You're not cast off forever. You're not cast off forever. You think you've been cast off, and this is where, I think, where, where the Jews and the ten tribes are really parallel. They feel like they've been cast off. That they are in uh, dysphoria is the Jewish term. They have been dispersed. They're in dysphoria. And they're waiting to make a liar come back. Okay? But they're going to think that they've been cast off. And he says, number one, I want you to know you are of the house of Israel. Why is it important to be in the house of Israel? Covenants. There are covenants and promises that the Lord will do what? Bring you home. As soon as you do what? Repent. Repent and accept the Savior. Then the covenants are in place. You are of the house of Israel. There are promises made to you that you're not going to be cast off and all you have to do is repent. Okay? Now with that then, so now we get to this one. So here's the title page. The first thing... Mormon wants in the book. Then his last will and testament over here. What does he put? I would speak unto the remnant of the house of Israel. What does he want them to know? Yeah, look at verse 2. You are what? House of Israel. Verse 3, you must do what? Repent. Uh, verse 4. Look at this. Now, in order to do that, he's going to use a very specific term. You need to do what? Lay down your weapons of war. Now, do we have a history in the Book of Mormon of Lamanites who laid down their weapons? Right exactly between that title page and this last will and testament what we end up with here is the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And who were they? They were Lamanites who did what? Repented, laid down their arms, and accepted the Savior. Here's what you do. Here's what I hope you'll do. Here's an example of, people, of Lamanites who did it. You see how he's done it? He, in other words, the Book of Mormon is crafted in such a way that he's going to send a message so that uh, for any of you who like serve missions uh, among the, the Lamanites in North America or the Lamanites in Central America or South America and you walk in as a missionary, what have you got? There is true. Here's your record. Listen to what your fathers have said. You are of the house of Israel. Here are the promises and all you have to do is go, 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 go. And this is who you are. 
Okay, is that cool? And by the way, is that working? Are the children's hearts turning to their fathers? Yeah, in, in a massive sort of way. And we are witnesses of it. We're, we're watching this whole tremendous process go on. This is very cool. Okay, now. Uh, Elder Holland, kind of speaking about this whole thing, has said, In a soliloquy of death, Mormon reaches across time and space to all, especially to that remnant of the house of Israel who would one day read his majestic record. By the way, anybody... Patriarchal blessing, any Manassites? your record. Those of another time and place, us and them, must learn what those lying before him have forgotten, that all must believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God. Now, to believe in Christ, especially when measured against such tragic but avoidable consequences, was Mormon's last plea and his only hope. So, in the ultimate purpose of that entire book would come to the latter day uh, bearing his name. That's why I just think it's fascinating. Um, we talked a little bit about how the church in terms of kind of branding itself. Uh, we've always been known as Mormons. We're of Mormon. Okay? And, and then church kind of went through saying, you know what? We'd rather be called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then the whole, the way that the world looks at it is as, as Mormons. And so rather than now trying to fight the name Mormon, what are we trying to do? Recast it. Reframe it. And embrace it. I am Mormon. You know, I do this and this and I am an Olympic athlete and I am Mormon. You know? And so part of the Mormon moment is a matter of saying, here's who Mormons are. So I, I kind of like that idea of being called Mormon, to be honest. Now, he's going to say, there's a lot of things we could look at in his last will and testament, but I want to take this one. Look at verse 8. And again, he's speaking to the remnant down the road. And he says, therefore repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and lay hold of the gospel which shall be set upon you. Not only in this record, what record is that? Book of Mormon. Okay. But what? Also in the record which shall come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you. The Bible. Now, I know, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but let me, let, let me just go back and remind us about something. If you're, a, if you're a missionary, or, you know, whether full-time or uh, civilian, and you're going to bring somebody in to, the, to help them come into the gospel, what do you want them to do? Read the Book of Mormon, right? Okay, has that familiar spirit and everything. And you're going to say to them, here's the Book of Mormon, 
And, and after you've read some, now what verse are you most likely to show them at the end of the Book of Mormon? Moroni 10, 4 and 5. Okay? And basically, if you'll, if you'll flip there for a second, Mormon 10, 4 and 5, Mormon uh, 10, uh, 4, Moroni, Mormon 10, 4 and 5. You're going to have a hard time finding Mormon 10, 4 and 5. <laughs> Still recovering from the uh, wildfire slide last night with the singles. <laughs> we, had a, we, had, we had a pretty good time. Okay, Moroni 10, 4 and 5. Okay, and verse 4 says, When you shall receive these things, you shall do what? If it's wisdom, then God. Ask and. And you'll be told, right? Verse 5, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, you know the truth of all things. Wonderful. Except that oftentimes we will then present the Book of Mormon to somebody and we go, read this, and they go, well, I'm not feeling, feeling anything. What's the problem? The problem often, brothers and sisters, is that we get caught up in verse 4 and 5 and we miss verse 3. Okay? Somebody read verse 3. Who's got, who's got verse 3? Okay, got it? Okay. Okay, now when you read these things in the Book of Mormon, okay? If it be wisdom in God that ye should read them, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men, from the creation of Adam even down until the time that ye shall receive these things and ponder in your hearts. Where's that at? Where are you going to read from the creation of Adam all the way down until the time you receive this? The Bible. So if somebody, what happens if you try and provide the Book of Mormon to somebody and they're struggling with the concepts of the Bible? Are you going to get it? No. In other words, what he's saying there basically is, first of all, you need to ponder and accept the things that are written in the Bible as your foundation. And then the Book of Mormon is more likely to then make sense. If you don't have that foundation in terms of there's a God, here's Genesis, I mean all of that stuff, the Book of Mormon will be a bit of a thought because it was, okay? So, so part of what he's saying is, is that the Bible helps provide the foundation. That's why I always thought it's wonderful. We're trying to get into other countries in the world and, you know, Billy Graham and others are, have, been, have done massive evangelical stuff going on in other countries. That's awesome. What are they learning? The Bible. They're providing the language and the understanding and the education about who God is. And, and if he's going to talk about, for instance, I'm speaking to the remnant of the house of Israel. And you don't have the Bible. Who's the house of Israel? And why is Israel even important? And who was he? And now I'm going to turn your hearts to the fathers. Who are the fathers? I have no idea. All of those are biblical concepts, and they're critical to understanding the Book of Mormon. Okay? So now he's going to say, then, not only this record, back to uh, Moroni 7, 8, not only this record, but also the record what will come unto the Gentiles from the Jews, which record shall come from the Gentiles unto you, 
For behold, it is written, this is written. Listen how, how he phrases this. Behold, this is written. Keep in mind, this is written is what? Book of Mormon. This is written for the intent that you may believe that. Meaning, the Bible. The Book of Mormon is written so you will believe the Bible. Now wait a minute, didn't we just contradict ourselves? Didn't we say that the Bible helps you understand the Book of Mormon? Why would the, why would the Book of Mormon help you understand the Bible? That you're going to get the plain and precious things that were taken out. Okay, why out? Yeah. It is a second witness of what? And what about Christ? Okay, hold on just a second. If you're gonna, if, if you're feeling so good and you say to to your neighbor, I want you to read the Book of Mormon. Here it is, and they are what, and they are Church of Christ, and you're delivering the the Book of Mormon to them. What's their response? I have a Bible, and you're saying, but it's more words of Christ. Wouldn't you want to read more words of Christ? And the Bible says, right? Don't have anything to. Yeah, you're not supposed to have any more. Where's what's the problem here? Here's here's the problem. Without trying to make it, without trying to get too complicated, it has nothing to do with the end of Revelations and and uh, Deuteronomy and all. It just doesn't. That's not what this is about. What this is about goes back to the Reformation moment. And, and originally when uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church there were a lot of, here's all of the performances and the sacraments and things that need to be done and we're going to interpret the Bible for you. Okay? Martin Luther and all of the reformists were coming in and saying um, that the, the Bible is sola scriptura. Sola Scriptura means it means the single source, which means we don't need to go to a priest to be able to understand the scriptures. That's why for uh, uh, John Wycliffe and uh, uh, William Tyndale and all of those guys who were desperately trying to get the Bible into the hands of the common man, it was Sola Scriptura. This can be between you and the scriptures, and here is the authority and here's the wisdom, and here's the word of God speaking through the scriptures to you. And you don't need a Catholic priest to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. Where's the problem with that? Because it's true. Yeah, there are some other things going on here. What happened then when Joseph Smith comes on the scene and he goes, I have received another record by prophets who have written it down and this is scripture also. What's the problem? No, we were told this is the only one. Right. The problem with the Book of Mormon was not what was in it. The problem with the Book of Mormon, especially in those early days as it is now, the problem with the Book of Mormon is that it existed. <laughs> the pure fact that it existed was the threat. Nothing in it, just the fact that it was there. There was an article in, in uh, the New York Times uh, right about 1830 saying we have received uh, scurrilous reports about this book in upstate New York 
that purports to be Scripture. We don't have a copy of this thing, but it's horrible, basically. Why? Not because of anything that was written in the Book of Mormon, but simply that it exists and challenged the, the soul of Scripture. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, BYU put out a, um, a three-part episode called Rain of Fire. Yes. It really helped me understand the Wonderful. If you haven't had a chance, yeah. I was, I was just watching the first one of those the other night. Yeah. Um, What's it called? Uh, yeah, what, what's it called again? Rain of Fire. Rain of Fire. And, it's, and it, shows, uh, it shows Tyndale and it shows uh, Martin Luther uh, tacking the things up on the Brandenburg doors and stuff like that. So, yeah, that, that's BYU TV. Uh, you can get that. That's really a great series. Uh, I've got a good friend of mine that's trying to put a movie together on uh, William Tyndale. Just looking for some funding. So. Um, all right. So the problem then, as it's always been, is the fact that the, the fact that the Book of Mormon exists challenges this whole idea that sola scriptura, that, that, that the Bible is all that there is, and it's supposed to all be contained in there. Now, from a, from a Christian standpoint, what if you take that one step and go, there might be another book with scripture in it? Why is that such a threat? What does that do to your world? Challenges the establishment. Oh, yeah. In what way? Their authority, their the authority. The authority. Their doctrine. The doctrine. I think it just challenges the fact they didn't know about it. Yeah, in part, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They may not be able to interpret any way they want because there's this other record kind of It's going to be nailed down because there's another interpretation saying this is, this is how it is. But the pure fact, because now let's go back to what it is, because um, here's what I think is the biggest one. If we go, uh, verse 9, Behold, this, the Book of Mormon, is written for the intent that you may believe that. And if you believe that, you will believe this. Okay, isn't that great? Um, the Book of Mormon is proof that God still speaks. That there are still prophets. That the Savior can communicate with prophets. Not just in biblical times, but outside of that. That is such a massive, oh, like a head blower kind of thing for a lot of people. It's just like, here, he only spoke for this period of time and we have this and we have to study God's Word. This is His Word. Just study His Word. Here it is, and, and, and the authority is in His Word, it's not in man. The authority is in His Word, the Spirit's in His Word, it's all in the Word. Now you break out of that box, and now the authority stuff begins to come into play. The Spirit comes into play, and it's outside of God's Word. No, it isn't. It's in addition to God's Word contained there. Well, that is just a massive change of thought. That's huge. And that's why I do have a certain amount of sympathy for those that are trying to make that jump. Because it goes so contrary to everything else. Okay? Now, from our standpoint, what does the Book of Mormon teach us? What was the plain and precious truths? What does the Book of Mormon teach us that's 
various things. Because this will establish that. And that will establish this. Okay? Got it? Okay. What is it that we learn in the Book of Mormon that we don't learn in the Bible? Our relationship to Abraham and the covenant. We get more on the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, that's one. But yeah, we're part of it. The, and, and that we're part of it. Okay? What else? Yeah. Well, I think we have a better understanding of the atonement. Because it's King Benjamin and all he talked about. Does, does that make some sense? Where in the Bible are you going to find the detailed conversations and understanding about the Savior and, his, and the atonement and how it works? <coughs> not there. That seems to have been one of the plain precious truths that were taken out. Either inadvertently or deliberately but it was removed somewhere. Okay? Yeah. How and when and who we baptize. Baptism begins to be much more clear, doesn't it? Yes. It's very clear. We're trying, we have a couple of references in the Bible not that clear. but not that clear. Right. Yeah. The sacrament is laid out a little bit more clearly, okay? Because the infant baptism is an abomination. Oh yeah, that infant baptism thing is certainly there. We're not making any bones about that one, yeah? I think when a So it's going to clarify how salvation works. It's also going to give you a better idea. It, it confirms the idea of grace, but it's going to get, but it's going to give you more in terms of exaltation and things like that. Now, uh, but somebody, by the way, somebody might say, "Well, the Book of Mormon doesn't say anything in there about uh, the the three degrees of glory, or it doesn't say anything much clear about temple work." And if it's not in the Bible, how come it's not in the Book of Mormon? Shouldn't the Book of Mormon fill in those things then? Do Mormons believe in, uh, you know, three degrees of glory? How come it's not in the Book of Mormon? It could have been, but... Uh, you think it's in the, worthy, in the hidden part? We weren't worthy enough to accept Could have been, yeah, yeah. Well, because the Book of Mormon is all about continuing revelation. Yes. Was it ever intended because that, that those things would be in the Book of Mormon? No. no. What's the purpose of the Book of Mormon? <laughs> to teach unto the remnant of the house of Israel that they're not cast out forever and that you need to repent and come unto Christ. That's where it is. So where are you going to find the things like the temple and the three degrees of glory and priesthood and all that? In the Doctrine and Covenants. That, that's why we have the Doctrine and Covenants. It was never intended to be in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. I would imagine too, as the lost ten tribes are regathered, yeah. they won't have records. Yes, they will. They're going to bring records with them, and they, they will have. But because us as Latter-day Saints are, are used to the idea of continuing revelation, we're not threatened by that, because great. You, I mean, the Savior spoke to them, Wonderful. We want to hear that too. But our, our traditions, our minds are prepared for additional revelation. We're not hooked into Sola Scriptura. We don't get caught up. <coughs> but at the same time, if we don't take what we have 
Mephibosheth. Yes, but you guys believe in the celestial kingdom and exaltation. Yes, we do. So are only Mormons going to get into the celestial kingdom? Yeah. <laughs> but is it a close shot? It's, it's open to everybody. See, that's why all these blessings that go with this is why this is important. Because we can look at that and go, well then this is a Lamanite book and this has nothing to do with me, the book of Mormon is. Because it's all about the remnants of the house of Israel and who are the other remnants of the house of Israel? Us. Her
We baptize somebody. Or we the missionaries contact them. Or they have the first two lessons. And now they're all excited about becoming Mormons. And then they're going to go off to the internet. What's going to happen? Polygamy, blood atonement, mountain meadows. Joseph spent his wife. And they just get blown down from a, with people that have a very specific goal, and that's to tear down testimonies. You're exactly right. And so let's come back to this idea. We, we need them to study. Now, as, as parents, then, as, as youth leaders, what are we wanting them to do? We're going to guide them. Here are a couple of chapters. You might read this. Read this section, Doctrine and Covenants. Here's a talk by uh, President Kimball. Why don't you study and read these? And let's get back to next week. Uh, and so that, that, that's a great point. Guide and direct that a little bit more. Don't just leave it, oh, because you're exactly right. Just Google it. And then they're toast. Yeah. And I think the key is the follow-up. Yeah, exactly. What did you find? What did it feel like? And in fact, there's another thing that I, and I've told some of the people that have struggled too uh, in the church. I said, when you go on those websites, how did you feel? Oh, dark and yucky. What does you think that mean? If I go to a place that's going to feel dark, that means that there's no spirit. What is the spirit telling you there? There's a lie here. Don't know what it is, but there's no truth. When you go to this and you're reading this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, how did you feel? Oh, I felt really good. Ah. So one of the ways that you can know truth from falsehood is how that feel of that spirit operates. See, all of those, they ask a simple question, they just open the vault. To I, this is all those things that I'm hoping to be able to teach them. Yeah. Nice lady in the back. <laughs> I was just going to say that, that several, several years ago, I had a question, and I wrote to the General Release Society of Christ to see about it. And one of the things that they got back to me with, and they didn't get back to me, was to say that we don't always know the answer to everything, but yeah. underlying, we need to trust that the ways of the Lord are joyful, so that when we do all this research, when we ask all these questions, that hopefully we're going to start with the premise that the ways of the Lord are joyful. Yeah. And that implies a certain amount of trust that when we start asking our questions, we start, you know, with that. The Lord loves me. He loves mankind. His ways are joyful. And when I'm studying, the, when, and when the Spirit attends, I will feel joyful. When there's no Spirit, I will feel dark. Yeah. What a wonderful lesson for them to learn at that point. Okay. Yeah. Well, Elder Bednar in a conference talk, I think a couple of conferences ago, talked about there that talk about being more concerned at home. He says, invite your children to have, come to come to your scripture study time with questions and look up things together. Yeah, it's all about questions, which is which is the key here. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> Don't you love Norton? Go away. Thank you very much. Okay, now, whew. now let, let's shift gears, and we can we can go on. You guys have got great comments, and this is I, I just think this whole thing of being able to study and learn and grow is just is just critical to what we're doing here. All right, now, speaking of that, let, let, let me introduce this quote. Some of you may have seen this because we're we now closing out Mormon, and now here comes. Moroni, 8 and 9, and this is 
truthful to me. I just can't find any background behind this thing. So let me, can I just throw it out as far as that goes? That it feels right? But I have to, I have to assume that maybe this was conversations with the Spirit and Joseph Smith and anyway. Speaking in, the, uh, in those early and perilous times of American history, our men were few and our resources limited. Poverty was among the most potent enemies we had to encounter, yet our arms were successful, and it may not be amiss to ask here by whose power victory was so perched on our banner. If, you, if you've read anything about the Revolutionary War, that's a miracle. There's no way we should have won that thing. That would be like, okay, Allen High School is playing pretty good football at the moment, but I think if they're going to play the Dallas Cowboys, it's going to be tough. <laughs> you know? And they pull off the win. And you go, how in the world did they do that? Well, that's kind of what this was. Okay? Well, it was by the agency of that same angel of God who appeared unto Joseph Smith and revealed to him the history of the early inhabitants of this country, whose mouths and bones and remains of towns and cities are in the dust or in the living with the voice of undeniable truth. In other words, he's saying, Moroni was involved. The same angel presides over the destinies of America and feels an invisible hand and feels a lively interest in our doings. He was in the camp of Washington. Wow. And by an invisible hand led our fathers to conquest and victory. And all this is to open and prepare the way for the church and kingdom of God to be established on the Western Hemisphere for the redemption of Israel and the salvation of the world. Okay? This same angel was with Columbus and gave him deep impressions by dreams and by visions respecting this new world. Traveled by poverty and an unpopular cause, yet his persevering and unyielding heart would not allow him an obstacle too great to overcome. The angel of God, Moroni, helped him and was with him on the stormy and was with him on the stormy deep, calmed and troubled elements and guided his frail vessel to the desired haven. Underlying guardianship, this same angel, or Prince of America. Had the United States grown, increased, and flourished like a sturdy oak by the rivers of water. Where did you find those tickets? It's a secret. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's in Journal of Discourses. Okay. I'll, I need to uh, actually. If you just put Moroni, Prince of America, into Google, you find it. Be careful, but he'll guard wrong website. <laughs> okay. So as we're talking about Moroni, I just think we have to be so aware of how much we do not know of Moroni. Uh, there's going to be a moment at which, uh, we're going to talk about Joseph Smith in a second here, but, I, but let me just share. There, there's a moment at which uh, Joseph is, uh, I think just before he gets the plates finally into his possession, he's kind of busy doing some things. We'll talk about that in a second, some of which have come back to haunt uh, Joseph and the church a little bit. But he's doing some things, helping dig for treasure. Um, and, and Emma, he, he, tell, he tells 
his mother that he's going off, he's going up to Palmyra to get some things, he's coming right back. It's hours before he comes back. And finally he comes in and Mother Smith is like, where'd you go? And he goes, I have just received the worst chastisement of my life. I ran into Moroni on the road and he basically has been ripping into me for hours. <laughs> And it's time for me to it's time for me to step up and do my responsibilities. Moroni was so involved in this entire process, much more than we have any idea. But very quietly, so it makes some sense to me that quietly behind the scenes, Moroni has been the guiding hand of doing this. Now, by the way, why not Mormon? Why wouldn't Mormon have been like finish it? He gets to be the guy to do all this stuff. How come Moroni? He's the last keeper of the record. Couldn't that have been Mormon? They have different jobs. They did have, and there's different callings for different things. I also have a suspicion that some of what Moroni needed to accomplish, I, I think a Mormon like King David may have had too much blood on his hands. You know, it's a little hard to shed that much blood and then there's some things you're going to have. That's my own belief. Just an idea. But it is interesting that Mormon did all of this and then his son takes it and kind of runs with it. That is difficult, yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, when you, if you write a book, you can promote your book, but if someone else promotes it, it has more power. <laughs> yes, that's true. I've certainly found that. <laughs> that is very true. It, it is always a little bit weird for me. We just arranged we're going to be up in Washington, D.C. over Thanksgiving, and we called the bookstore up there and said, hey, how about a book signing so we can write a trip off? Okay, yeah, so we'll go do that. I, I hate book signings. <laughs> it's like I'm going to stand there and go read my book. It's weird. It's always better if somebody else promotes it. Yeah. Um, just, just understanding more of, um, I guess, Moroni's involvement and everything, it just makes it even more heartbreaking when you, you realize how tied he was yes. to these people and to this continent and to what needed to happen because he, of the visions that he received and just how heartbreaking it is for him. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm all alone. More, Moroni just breaks your heart, doesn't he? Oh, Because yeah. um, look, if we go to uh, Mormon 8, now he's going to pick it up. And it's almost like, if this is a movie, it's like, now you should have like this very sad music score that begins to come up. You know, while we read this, okay, uh, some of them maybe like Schindler's List or something, the music for that thing, and be like, oh, set the mood. And behold, I, Moroni, do finish the record of my father, Mormon. Uh, behold, I have but a few things to write, which things I've been commanded by my father. Now, let me just mention, just to put this in perspective, I want you to hop down to verse 6. Behold, how much... How many years have passed away? 400. If you look back to the last battle of Camorra, what year is that? 385. This is 15 years later. This isn't like Moroni, the Mormon dies and he's writing the next morning. This is 15 years later. Where's he been for 15 years? Hiding. Hiding. You know that he says, he's about to tell you that the remaining Nephites, there were a number of Nephites that did survive that battle at Camorra. 
They went into the south, southward, back down near Zarahemla. Okay? And then ultimately, they're killed off. So at some point, Mormon dies. We don't know how long he survived after that. He's obviously wounded. Did he die of his wounds? We don't know. But eventually, he's one of those that will be killed by uh, the Lamanites. You know, that's been one of the questions, isn't it? Uh, it is a fascinating thing. Uh, Moroni. We have, we, we know for sure, according to Brigham Young, that Moroni dedicated two temple sites for sure, right? Manti. It goes there, that's where, that's where we're supposed to build the temple. And St. George. We love this spot over here. No, see the swamp? Moroni dedicated that spot. Drain the swamp. So we know Manti... Now, was this in this 15 years? Did he then trick across? Who knows? Would it make sense that maybe he might have done uh, Independence? Might we have done Salt Lake? Who knows? Anything? But it would make sense to me that maybe he's beginning to prepare the way. Yeah. Ah, yeah, she, she says we only talk about the, the men in the family, but you, you read as they're gathering. Remember, uh, Mormons fighting a, fighting a war with 35,000 people. Then at, then at Cumorah, Mormon is going to lose 230,000 men. And then, but it says they're gathering the children and the wives. And you're right, it makes it much more tragic much more tragic when you realize the numbers were larger, the, the amount of slaughter among women and children was there as well. That's why this is just heartbreaking. And here's Moroni after all of this for 15 years. i got to think he wants out of Dodge, man. He's going to get out of there and go somewhere. I think he may have gone up near wherever the anti-Nephi-Lehi's ended up because they went way up into the north country. I don't think they were even involved in Cumorah. And he might have just gone northward uh, to spend time with them. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, there's a prominent book out even speculating that he was an anti-Nephi-Lehi, that, that Mormon had married a Ammonite wife. So I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, okay, verse 6. 400 years have passed away. Verse 7. The Lamanites have hunted my people, the Nephites, from city to city, place to place. Great is their fall. It's the hand of the Lord that's done it. Um, the only ones that were left were the three Nephites. We've seen them. Uh, verse 13, I make an end concerning, uh, speaking these people, I am the son of Mormon and my father was the descendant of Yeah. In other words, uh, lineage is still important. We're still of the, of the house of Israel. Now, He's going he's to say something kind of interesting. Let me give a little back story on this. Verse 14. I love how he put this. Uh, I am the same who hideth up this record unto the Lord. Which is interesting because he's not going to hide it up permanently for Joseph Smith for another uh, 20 years. But he's having to hide it apparently at certain points. I hideth this record up unto the Lord. The plates there are of 
These are gold plates. Yeah. Well, we know there were a whole room full of plates, right? Yeah. You're right. But he's also saying they're of no worth. They're gold plates. Aren't they, aren't they worth a lot? Listen to how he does this. They, the plates there are of no worth. But because of the commandment of the Lord, for he truly saith that no one shall have them to what? Get gain. Okay. Now, bit of a backstory. Uh, and again, it's one of those things that kind of gets brought up by the anti-Mormon. Um, without trying to provide too much information, uh, when the Smiths built their house, Alvin was the chief, kind of chief architect in building the Smith family farmhouse uh, with dad, mom, and all these kids running around and Alvin Joseph's older brother was the chief architect in getting the thing built. To get it built, uh, Alvin died. This is in this is still in Palmyra. It's still in Palmyra. Okay? They get the house built. Alvin dies. Um, they're supposed to make a mortgage payment, the people that own the, the own the land. They originally don't really ask for the mortgage payment. Because of that they don't make the mortgage payment and like a year or two later mortgage is coming due they don't have the money to provide for that and from that point Joseph will Joseph Smith Sr. will have to rent the house out basically they will lose their inheritance landlord from that moment he becomes very poor and he's just trying to subsist on anything that they can do to keep to keep things going okay uh, as part of that there is in the area of New England at that point uh, the upper, that, that upper area, there's a lot of belief in magic and hidden uh, gold and silver and treasures. And, and treasure hunting and treasure sinking is a pretty popular kind of thing, especially among those that are very poor. And so they're doing a lot of digging. Well, Joseph develops a reputation for finding lost things. He can find lost things, lost plows, <laughs> lost all kinds of things. Uh, and there are a group of people that are into treasure hunting in a big way, uh, by a man by the name of Chase, uh, who try to set try to set up this uh, they set up this treasure digging hunting expedition of eleven people, nine of which is his group, nine and ten are Joseph Smith Sr. and Joseph Smith Jr. Dad gets into this trying to somehow try and find a way to protect the farm. He Hauled Joseph into this thing. And they do some treasure hunting for about a month, digging up and finding Joseph is able to convince his father to say, Look, can we stop now? This is, this is idiotic. Okay, so then they quit. Now, it's against that backdrop. This is about a year before Joseph will actually get the plates permanently. That's why he was good at finding things. He had a reputation. Okay? When he gets the plates... Problem number one is what happens when Joseph is going to get, when he goes to the place, he gets the lever, he removes the rock, he looks inside, what does he see? Oh, gold. 
And what's the first thought through his head? In fact, what happens? It's like it's like the thing is like protected by a taser, right? Because he's gonna like try to reach in. trying to get the plate. And that's where Moroni is standing next to him going, not yet, buddy. <laughs> we need to grow up a little bit here before we're good. Because you're, you're not looking. These are plates of no worth. Yes, they are. They're gold. No, these are of no worth. Okay. Put the rock back. Oh, and by the way, ultimately, when Joseph finally gets the, the night that he goes and gets all of that stuff and he brings it home and he talks to somebody the next day uh, and he's got the plates and he's got the interpreters and the breastplate and everything. Do you know what he's really fascinated by and he loves the most of all the things he just got? He's such a guy. You only got the Urim and Thama. These are so cool. You can look at these things. You can see things. I mean, he's got, he's got the plates of an ancient record there, and he's going, oh, man. <laughs> Look at these. It's a, he says, these are marvelous to the whole. These are awesome. Such a kid. And in fact, he kept, you know, he kept the Yerba Thumb with him, and when someone would try and get the plates, the, the Yerba Thumb would tell him, he could look at it, and I guess basically could see that what they were trying to do. Anyway, so, so anyway, that's it. So he's the first one. Now, when, he, when it's time for him to go get the plates, he has to go shortly after midnight on September 22nd to go get these plates. And he's got to do it after midnight. Why? Safety. Why? What's he, what's he having to be safe from? The other people who are trying to get the gold plate. Why are they trying to get the gold plates? They are the other nine of the 11 original treasure hunters who believe that nine elevens of that, the gold plates, are theirs. That's why. They hire a diviner who comes in from New York, I think, to help find the plates that they are part owners of in their mind. And guess what? She leads them right to the heart where the book of where the plates are buried under the heart. So then they had to then kick them out, get them out, move it in, put them in the beans, put it in the stump, put, finally put it in the box. They're trying to they're trying to stay one step ahead of the rest of the gang who says, by law, we own because he's under contract with us if he finds anything valuable, it's partly ours. Okay? So that's why I think it's interesting that for those people, the presence of gold plates is just blowing everybody's mind. There's treasure here. That's why I think it's, it's just fascinating to me that we're going to get to this thing where he's being able to say, uh, the plates there are of no worth because of the commandment of the Lord. For he truly saith, verse 14, that no one shall have them to get gain. But, Joseph, reading down through the future, and you're finally translating this, but, what's a great word? The record. the record. 
Joseph will learn this lesson again. We'll talk about this more uh, winter semester. Remember when he goes on the, there's treasure to be had, I think it was in Boston, and they go up, someone's supposed to give him some treasure to help rescue the church financially. They go up there, it's a fool's errand. There was never any money. And the Lord says, there is treasure here. Go preach the gospel. The souls are the real treasure here. So. Okay. And then verse 16, you imagine this. Uh, Joseph is translating this, and blessed is he that will bring this thing to light. Okay. Alright, now. There, there's more we could do on that, but we're, we're running short on time. So, um, let's hop over if we can. Oh, by the way, um, it is interesting that part of what we're going to get from Moroni is that he's going to give us the death of three civilizations. That, that's his wonderful legacy. Okay? He's going to show us the death of the Nephites. He's going to show us the death of... The Jaredites, and who else? Yeah, he shows up. By bringing us the plagues, and we have the records of Nephi, and we have the records of Isaiah, and everything, we get to see our, the death of our civilization. That's why, that's why uh, President Benson said, if you want to see, you want to know how, how the, the second coming, the events prior to the second coming will look? Read Elam. Yeah, you can. Okay, now. Uh, Alright, Let, let's look over at uh, Moroni 9. Uh, by the way, have you ever wondered what the, what the, the records look like on the plates? That's them. That, that's a copy of what Martin Harris took to New York that Joseph took off of the plates. That's, that's Reformed Egyptian, in case you wonder. Yes. Okay. Back up. You're talking about the death of the civilization as when Christ comes. Is that what you're talking about? When you say us? Right. No, I'm talking about us like today. In other words, we're going to see the death of an entire civilization, all the Nephites, when they are wiped out. Then we're going to see the death of the the uh, uh, when they're completely wiped out. And then what we're going to see is in the last days we're going to see our, through Nephi and other places, we're going to see the death of this civilization as it prepares for the second coming and all the stuff just prior to that. Kind of a spooky set of things. But, uh, okay. Yeah. But the gospel will never be taken. But the gospel is never taken. In the midst of this civilization dying, and the, the message we're preparing for Armageddon on one side there is Adam on Diamond over here. Okay, and all the horrible stuff uh, the second coming is, is here but all the marvelous promises of the priesthood gathering and, and all of that is also there. Okay, now I don't want to uh, we're going to hit this a little bit more next week when we get more into uh, uh, Ether and Joseph's, or uh, Moroni's great, in, in Ether 12, Moroni's interview with the Savior, uh, and everything that we get there. But, but I, want, I want to kind of touch on, that, uh, touch on this in the time that we've got uh, left. Speaking down through the, down through the ages, uh, 
By the way, we need to... Um, Is it an eight? Oh, yeah, hop over for just a second to uh, back over to uh, Mormon 8, 35. Because if you're going to say, well, he's now going to speak to us. How can he speak to us so succinctly? How can, how can Moroni really be calling us on our stuff? Okay? Somebody, somebody read that. Verse uh, 35. You got it. Okay, yeah. Behold, I speak unto you as if you were present, and yet we are not. But behold, Jesus Christ has shown you unto me, and I know you're here. Wow! He's seen our movie. <laughs> He's seen us. He's seen our day. Which, by the way, how did he do that? What that tells me is that Moroni um, had what I call the vision prior to this. The vision is the one that the brother Jared had, that Joseph Smith had, that Moses had, that Enoch had, where they're shown everybody in the future, and somehow there's an ability to comprehend all of that in a way that is just hard to believe. But so, so when Moroni is speaking to us, he has seen our day. So he's not just sort of seeing us. Okay? He's seen our day. Um, I mentioned before, uh, this is a little bit sidetracked. I mentioned here that uh, I asked uh, our state patriarch, uh, Lou Lordson, how does the patriarch work? How does that work? You know, that's fascinating to me. And he said, I, he says, when I lay my hands on their head, it's like, this whole thing opens up and all I can do is like grab this and that and this and that. And he says, I'm aware that there's a lot that I'm missing now but I'm trying to grab the most important stuff. And then it shuts down. Wow. Okay. Imagine that in magnified a million times and now you're getting Nephi. I've seen you. I've seen your day. So based on that, he's going to He's going to give us a little bit of advice. Verse 28 of Mormon 9. Be wise in what? Days of your probation. Strip yourself of uncleanliness. 29. See that you are not baptized unworthily. By the way, how do you do that? Doesn't baptize, baptizing cleanse you? How would you be baptized unworthily? By not proper authority. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't do it the right way. By not meaning it. I mean just doing it casually or just because... Joseph Smith it. said that if I'm going to baptize somebody without that intent, I might as well baptize a sack of sand. Exactly. Is what he said. Yeah. Taking the sacrament. And then taking the sacrament unworthily. He's going to talk about that. Okay. Now. Behold 30, I speak unto you as though I spake from the dead. For I know that ye shall have my words. How does he know that? Does he see us sitting and reading the Book of Mormon? Isn't that cool? Prince of America. Cool guy. 
Verse 31, and, and this, this is a verse that has always just filled me with such mix of emotions. Condemn me not because of mine imperfections. Neither my father because of his imperfections. Do you think, by the way, that he saw, as he looked forward into the future, he saw people making fun of the Book of Mormon? But is it possible, even more especially, that he looked at Latter-day Saints who didn't think that the Book of Mormon was worth reading? That it was gathering as much dust on their shelf as their Bible was. Condemn me not because of mine imperfections, neither my father because of his imperfections, neither them who have written before him. But rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. Wow. Don't you feel like as a parent that's what we say to our children? Yeah. Don't we do that as parents? It's like, please, be smarter than I was. You don't have to make the same mistakes I made. Yes, we do. I'm 15. I want to do it my way. Okay. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can take this. Because when we start talking about imperfections, this is one that cuts a lot of us kind of right to the core, right? Just as there's a difference between sins and mistakes, there's an important difference between sins and imperfections. In mortality, we will always be weak. We will always have our weaknesses. We will always need God's grace to respond constructively. But, weakness is what? Not sin. Sometimes in, in the pursuit of perfectionism, because we have weaknesses, we condemn ourselves because of our weaknesses. And then we mourn and feel like we should be repenting all the time because of our weaknesses. We're mortal. We have our imperfections, and our imperfections are not necessarily sin. Well, and the Lord tells us that He gave us our weakness. And if you come unto me, and we get to either 12, I'll show you your weaknesses. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay? The compulsive and the perfectionist among us, not that there's anybody in this group that would ever struggle with those little things. Never, I know. The compulsive and perfectionist among us need to realize that a large part of why things go wrong in this life is what? The fall of Adam. Not their own Now, let me ask. How often do we condemn ourselves because of our imperfections? And condemning is not just feeling bad about. Condemning is, if you're condemned to die, what does that mean? You're doomed. You're doomed. Yeah, you're doomed. No hope. There's no hope. And we condemn ourselves because of our weaknesses. And the Lord says, I knew you were going to have weaknesses and I love you. I gave you grace. 
My grace is going to lift you and inspire you and help you in spite of your weaknesses. And I give unto men weaknesses that they may be humble enough to do what? Come unto me. And my yoke is easy. And your burden is light even with your weaknesses. I just think that's beautiful. Don't condemn yourself because of your weaknesses. That's part of your natural who you are. Yeah. Uh, one day when I was, I think you're back about 25 years ago when I was doing all these stupid things, you know? Uh-huh, yes. And, you know, when I stopped and I thought, well, how have I grown and learned and <coughs> changed the past 20 years? Isn't that the point? Uh-huh. There's and growth. I'm, I'm just going to drop it, you know? And hopefully another 20 years I will learn something from where I am now. I figured that when I was in the in the pre-existence, organization was not my thing. <laughs> I'm guessing. It seems to be one of those things that I brought with me here. And it's probably one of those things that I will continue to struggle with for an awful long time. Yeah? I think too often we, we focus more on our weaknesses, so much so that we can't utilize our strengths to help other people. No question. And if Yeah, because this is the phrase. He's not saying not be aware of your weaknesses, don't ignore your weaknesses. He's just saying don't condemn yourself for your weaknesses. That's a big difference. I know it's there and I wish they weren't and I'm going to try and do better, but this isn't like I have to be mourning all the time because I have weaknesses. I'm a fallen mortal. I'm going to have them. Yeah. But who makes them strength? He makes, he makes them strength. We don't. I just have to try harder to get rid of all my imperfections. Really? <laughs> Surrender more than. Give it up. Because he'll do it, not you. And, and here's the bummer about that. That's right. The problem is, no, I want it done when? Now. And he's going to do it when? His time. In his time. And his time is based on what's best for us. So he, he will remove our weaknesses on his timeline according to our best interest. And we say our best interest would be like this morning. And he says, no, there's some things you're going to have to experience and learn and grow from. Okay? Now, in the, in the last... Let me take this one step farther, though. Elder, Elder Maxwell. A wise leader will be aware that his imperfections are noticed. But he will also humbly hope that when others see his imperfections, this will provide them with a chance to learn to be more wise than he has been. Good parents as well as good prophets also so Now, think about the times as parents or leaders or someone in a calling. Do you have weaknesses? 
Yeah. Do you have imperfections? Yes. Is it okay that they know that? It's important. It's important. It's critical that they know that. And it's, and it's critical that they watch how you deal with those imperfections. If we're going to try and always put ourselves in a position to cover all of our weaknesses and all of our imperfections, but we're afraid that people will not want to be around us if they see them or they're going to react, then we're always going to be on such... We're never going to be able to teach the way that we, we possibly could. Yeah? Okay. I've been sitting here thinking, okay, what's the difference between imperfections or weaknesses right. and sin? Some are real clear, but some seem to blend. Like, people struggle with addictions like uh -huh. smoking. Okay, in the word of wisdom, you can't smoke if you want to go to the temple. Right. But it's also weakness. Yeah. That's, you know, so that's, you know what I'm saying? Because a sin ends up being a violation of a commandment. And you're right, there's a blending sometimes and, and then that, those weaknesses and imperfections are those things that we just can't seem to get right. And sometimes we start knocking on the door of that a little bit. You're right, sometimes there's a blending. But I'm just amazed at how often we are, uh, we're wanting, you know, to be reading our scriptures and saying our prayers and then sometimes when we miss some of those things, then we beat ourselves up so badly, for instance because we're having a hard time getting organized or, or something, that we feel like we have to repent mightily when he just says, get back on the horse and go. Well, I think too, our weaknesses, and I remember when I was 15 and was getting my patriarchal blessing, and, and, I, and I would tell my seminary students this too, that when you get your patriarchal blessing, there's a lot that you're getting that is not going to be written down. It's going to be the impressions that you get, and that's part of your blessing too, that the patriarch's not going to say. And one of the things that I remember very clearly, there was one thing that the patriarch said, and the thoughts that came into my head weren't even necessarily related to what he said. It was just, the actual words he used just barely touched on the messages that I was getting about weaknesses that I have, that being aware of those weaknesses can help you to choose better. Know that this is a weakness. And so, yes, somebody may have a weakness towards smoking or somebody may have a weakness towards other activities. Knowing that weakness ideally will make it so that we will protect ourselves. Yeah. Because we know that there's a weakness, so keep as far away. And we're, and we're much more aware of that once we recognize what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, in closing, let, let me just share uh, uh, actually a true little story, um, and, and then we'll be finished. There is a... There's a story, I guess, in, in southern Utah of a, uh, of a man that kind of got caught up on gospel, uh, his gospel hobby horse was the second coming. And he always, and everything he did was all about the second coming, and every time he talked, he talked about the second coming. They made him deacon's quorum advisor, and all he would talk to the kids about was the second coming. And the kids in the quorum got tired of hearing about the second coming. So they thought that they would play a joke on him, and, and they went out to his chicken coop, and they, they took an egg, and they wrote on it, the, the second coming will be such and such a day. They <laughs> waited underneath the chicken. So on Sunday morning, you know, this man comes out, and he gathers the eggs, and he looks at the eggs, and it's like, <gasps> and he's so excited, and, and he gets to church, and, 
And the bishop, who's a little Scandinavian man, he says, I just need a minute in, in second meeting. Please, you just have to let me have a moment in second meeting. And, and okay. And, and he got up there and he said, you guys always laugh at me because I, I would talk so much about the second coming. Well, I have proof where the second coming will be. And here it is. And he's waving it out there. The second coming will be here. Of course, the deacons are in the back going, And he goes through all of this, and then he sits down. Well, here's this wonderful little bishop sitting there. What do I do? And he gets up, and in his little Scandinavian accent, he says, uh, I've lived among you for a long time, and you know that. And you know my, all of my sins and imperfections, and you know those too. But this much I know. When the second coming comes, it will be pronounced through the mouth of the prophet and not through the bowels of the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, part of our challenge, I think, is to be human and allow those people, or those around us to know that we're human. And to know that we struggle with our weaknesses and imperfections. And as we're able to have some success there, that'll become apparent. But part of it too is then not condemning others for their imperfections as well. And this whole thing of becoming Zion and becoming one is one of those things. Pride is what took down all three of these civilizations that Merle is going to tell us about. And being imperfect and being okay with that and allowing the Lord to do it is going to be part of that process. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.